So I found a new show on Netflix, uh, and I was actually just talking to David and Becca about it. I'm not going to tell you the name. Uh, you can come up later and, and tell me if you think you know what I'm talking about, and I'll give you a dollar or something. Um, probably not. But it's a, it's, it's, about, it's a show about a family, and specifically about a brother uh, who's kind of the black sheep of the family, and he's come home. And his life is a wreck, it's been a wreck, and he feels betrayed by his family, and he comes to find out that they betrayed him even worse than he realized. He needs to be forgiven, and he needs also to forgive. But he tries to, to deal with the pain in all the wrong ways. He tries to deal with the pain by leaving again. He tries to deal with the pain by escaping through alcohol and drugs. He tries to deal with the pain by getting even. And the things that he chooses to do in response to that pain shape what his life begins to look like. And none of the things he chooses brings, bring redemption or healing or restoration or peace. Um, we all have times of heartache in our lives, difficult times, uh, times of, of pain, things in our present, things in our past, ways we've sinned, ways we've been sinned against, and all those things shape us in who we are, but it's not just the things in themselves that shape us, it's also the way that we respond to these things that shapes what our lives look like. And so what we're going to do this morning in this first chapter of Samuel is to look at one woman's heartache and how she responds to that heartache and what that leads to in her life. So uh, look at our scripture reading. I know this is kind of long, but I, I, I think we need all this to get the, to get the full story. Um, so hang with me as we read this. This is 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. This is God's word. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Paniah. And Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Paniah his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. 
Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to thee, Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My heart is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down the Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Uh, would you pray with me? Uh, Father, thank you for this passage that we have before us. Uh, I pray that you would help me to, to handle it carefully and speak clearly. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would give us attentive hearts to your word. 
uh, and that you would use it in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to look at, at three things here uh, in this text. Hannah's despair, Hannah's prayer, and then Hannah's song. Uh, and we'll start here with Hannah's despair. Uh, if you're going to lose it, if you're going to dissolve into tears, you'd rather have that happen in private, right? It's not something you want to have happen in public. Sometimes, though, you're in public and you can just feel that coming. But you hold it together long enough to get home, long enough to make it to the car, maybe at least long enough to make it to the bathroom before you break down. But Hannah couldn't make it. She couldn't hold it together any longer. Uh, she had reached her breaking point, and she was in public. She was at church even. Verse 7 tells us that Hannah wept and would not eat. Verse 10 tells us she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. How did she get to this place? Why wasn't she in this spot where she's breaking down? Um, she had a husband who loved her, a husband who worshiped the Lord, and from what we can tell was a man of some wealth and status. But everything wasn't okay with her. Uh, she wasn't able to have children. And that was a big deal for her, obviously. But it was also a big deal for her husband, Elkanah. For Elkanah, the fact that his wife was unable to have children meant this was the end of his family line. This is the end of his family name. This is the end of his dynasty. And that's probably a, a bigger deal, deal in that culture than, than we would be able to think of that today. But imagine if Apple just ended uh, when Steve Jobs died. It, it's sort of that thing in a family line. His family line was going to end because he had no male heir. And because of this, for this reason in that culture, it was common for a man in this situation to take a second wife... Uh, who hopefully would be able to, to bear him a male son as an heir. So Hannah faces the embarrassment of not being able to have children, faces the embarrassment of her husband taking a second wife because of her barrenness, and then this new wife, Paniah, she likes to talk trash. She's constantly talking smack to, to Hannah about this, and verse 7 says that she actually does this at church. What do you have to worship God for, Hannah? He closed your womb. He must not want you to have any children. And her husband, Elkanah, he, he seems to mean well, but he's not quite as understanding as he could be. In verse 8, he says, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Am I not enough for you? Come on, baby. I'm, I'm not enough to you. Do you have to have children too? He, he loved her, but he's, he's like a lot of guys. He doesn't know what exactly to say, and he manages to say just the wrong thing. So Hannah's broken. Uh, she's distressed. She's hurting. And most all of us have been there at, at one point or the other, and maybe you're there now. Uh, maybe you've had trouble conceiving. Maybe you've had a, a miscarriage, uh, a troubled marriage, a wayward child, chronic pain, uh, sin that you're stuck in and, and can't seem to move on from, abuse from your past that haunts you. Maybe it's a, a messed up family situation. Maybe you're lonely and feel, feel like nobody knows you or knows the real you. Maybe there's just something about the hand that you've been dealt in life that you just 
can't stand, you can't tolerate any longer. And one of the questions that comes to our mind in times like those is, why? Why, God, why me? Why my child? Why my parent? Couldn't you have given me a different part to play in your movie, God? I don't really like this one. And yet, the scripture tells us that in some mysterious way, God is sovereign in all things, even over our suffering, even over the painful things in, in my life and your life. Uh, the passage is very clear, isn't it, that Hannah's inability to have children is not just an accident. It says twice in verse 5 and verse 6 that the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord was the one who had done this. Her inability to have children was from God. Why? Why had he closed her womb? Why hadn't he allowed her to have children? Well, let's play what if with that for a minute. What if Hannah hadn't been afflicted in this way? What if she hadn't been barren? What if she had had children with no trouble at all? Would she have prayed? Would she have prayed desperately? Would she have prayed as she prayed in verse 11? If you give me a son, I'll give him to you for your service. If everything had been wonderful about her life, would she have ever gotten to this point where she sought God with all of her heart, not only just for a child, but praying in effect that God would be glorified through this child if he would choose to give one to her? Would, would she really have sought God like this, desperately sought God, if everything in her life had come easily to her? Uh, this, uh, I need to say this sermon is not intended to be an exhaustive treatment uh, but uh, on, surf, on suffering, but I'm trying to get at one angle of it. Uh, I think one of the things that God is doing, one of the things that he does when he brings us through these desert experiences in life is that he's putting us in places where we need to pray. He's putting us in places where we need to pray, where we need to seek him where we realize that we're not capable of doing things in our own strength. Where despite what we always try to tell everybody else, I really can't handle this. I'm really out of my depth on this, and I need help. You know, if everything's going well, isn't it, isn't it easy to, to kind of do life without God? I mean, don't you find yourself doing that when everything is okay? And maybe not intentionally, but it's just kind of easy to sort of drift away from God. But what if God brings hardship into our lives to cause us to turn to him and to cry out to him? Uh, not like an angry dad who says, I'm not going to pay your tuition anymore if you don't start calling your mom more often. Uh, but in the sense of, I love you. And the best possible thing for your life is not for you to be pain free and have this wonderful storybook life but the best thing is for you to know me and to know your need of me and what if our troubles are God's way of putting pressure on us in such a way as to cause us to seek him uh, C.S. Lewis uh, once said we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. 
It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. What if God is putting us in our troubles in a place where we have to pray? Because he knows that prayer is the place where we'll connect with the one that we're actually made to connect with. That prayer is a place where we'll get to know the one that we were made to actually know. Uh, I was the campus minister with RUF at, at App State for eight years, uh, and I wasn't a very good prayer there. I'll just, I'll just confess that. And that really was a, a reflection of my relationship with the Lord at the time. Paul Miller in his book of Praying Life says that a dysfunctional prayer life is a sign of a dysfunctional relationship with our Father. And God used three things during that time and, and, and since then uh, to really bring me to the end of my rope and to teach me how to pray and to work on my relationship with Him. Uh, one of those things was my own sin. There's, there's nothing quite like getting tangled up in your own junk to show you how helpless you are to fix things and to make you pray. Another thing was, was some health issues I had that I won't go into detail, but that were very life-altering. And I just remember weeping and saying, Lord, would you just make this stop? I just want to live a normal life, and I can't do that anymore. And then the third thing was, was planning a church, and not to equate planning a church with sin and bad health issues, um, but church planning is, is hard. And it brings you to see your own inability, your own lack of strength, your own helplessness. Uh, there are days when I thought, those people wouldn't come to this church even if I preached like Tim Keller. If I brought him in and had him every Sunday, they still wouldn't show up. And there are days when I thought, if I don't preach like Tim Keller, then everybody's just going to leave. And so as, as you're kind of wrestling with all of those things you really start to see your own sin, your own selfishness. Hey, I do kind of like this sin that I'm struggling with. I do just want to be well so I can enjoy life and do my own thing. I am a victim of just wanting success, and even in planning a church, wanting my success and not God's glory. I heard the story of a church planner the other day. He was, he was planting a church, and they had been praying for revival in their city, and he felt like God was telling him, all right, well, what if I bring revival to this city, but it's not through your church? Would you still be okay? Would you still be excited about God doing that? As you're praying, as you're wrestling with your pain, as you're wrestling with, with your sin and your suffering and your selfishness, God does something in all of that. He shows you He loves you. He shows you that He forgives you. He reminds you of a day when everything's going to be okay. And slowly, ever so slowly, he makes your prayer and your life more about him. And more about knowing him. More about glorifying him and enjoying him, as we talked about earlier. More about knowing him and less about however you would define a wonderful, perfect storybook life. And believe me, I, I haven't arrived uh, but I do think adversity is one of those things that leads us to pray. And praying leads us to God. And that changes who we are. So uh, just a couple of things. If, if you're dealing with something really hard right now, maybe one of the things that God is doing in your life is that He's seeking to draw you into a deeper relationship with Him. Don't, don't miss that opportunity. 
maybe he's putting you in a place where you seek after him, maybe for the very first time. Don't miss that opportunity. Uh, secondly, it's often when we're at the very end of our rope, when we're at the end of our human resources, that God delights to step in and do amazing things. Uh, there are a lot of women in the Bible who are not able to have children. It's like this common recurring theme through the scriptures. Sarah and Rebecca and Elizabeth, uh, the mother of John the Baptist, barren women who are enabled by God to have children, children who grow up to play key roles in what God is doing to rescue his people. So don't give up on what God might be doing in your life, even when things seem really hard and you can't see where they're going. So Hannah's prayer, I mean, excuse me, Hannah's despair, I want to talk for a minute about Hannah's prayer. Uh, Hannah's despair did that in her life. It caused her to, to draw near to, to God and to cry out to him. Uh, Eli even thinks that she's drunk, but, but look at verses 15 and 16. Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Um, two things about this. Number one, what are you doing with your trouble? What are you doing with your trouble? In your trouble... God is handing you an opportunity. He's giving you an opportunity to seek Him. He's giving you a reason to seek Him. Do you? Are you? Or are you seeking relief somewhere else? Uh, Walter White sought to ease the pain of his cancer and show that he really was somebody by establishing his, his crystal meth kingdom. Mr. Bohannon and Hell on Wills, his family is murdered by Yankee soldiers and so he's going to track all of them down and have his revenge and kill them. You're like, well, I'm not doing anything that dramatic. But, but, but you know, how often do we say, just a, just a couple more drinks and then I'll be able to forget about this. I won't have to think about that anymore this week. Just a few more minutes online and, and then I'll stop. Are we wallow in our bitterness we embrace the bitterness. Are we worry and worry and worry some more? Um, Paul Miller in his book of Praying Life says that uh, an unused prayer link looks like anxiety. Like, anxiety is actually a, a function of, of prayerlessness. And he writes, instead of connecting with God, our spirits fly around like severed power lines destroying everything they touch. Anxiety wants to be God, but lacks God's wisdom, power, or knowledge. A godlike stance without godlike character and ability is pure tension. Because anxiety is self on its own. It tries to get control. It is unable to relax in the face of chaos. Once one problem is solved, the next one steps up. Instead of continuing kind of to wallow in our worry, why not use those anxieties to actually lead you to God? Make those the things that you actually pray about. That's what Hannah does here. It's not like she was all peaceful and serene. She says to, to, to Eli the priest, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety. She was anxious. She was troubled. But she allowed that anxiety and that trouble 
to lead her to God. Where's your trouble leading you? Where's your trouble leading you? When you can't sleep at night because of the worry, because of the whatever, why not just pray yourself to sleep? Why not just pray yourself to sleep? There's no better place than in the arms of your father to fall asleep. Why not go to him? Uh, Anne Lamont recently said, with everyone we've ever known or loved who has gotten sober or off whatever their addiction was, it begins with running out of good ideas. It begins with this pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization with your best efforts. And then you say the first great prayer, which is help. Help. Have you learned to say help? Isn't that what the gospel is all about? Isn't it about fundamentally saying help? Uh, secondly, I want to say about her prayer. Um, if, if you're a mess, if your life is messy, come to God in prayer messy. Hannah comes messy. Eli thought she was drunk. This is not a composed proper Presbyterian prayer. Okay? She's kind of out of control sobbing and, and, and weeping. And he's like, what is going on with this woman? She comes messy. When I was, um, when I was in law school, it was, it was very brief. Uh, I lived with a couple of roommates in a, um, in a rental house in kind of a rough section of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And, and all of Tuscaloosa is rough, but um, this is a little Auburn joke. Uh, but but we, lived, we lived next door to a guy uh, who lived with his grandmother, and he was 18 years old. Uh, he didn't know how to read. He would come over sometimes to wash his clothes, and one time he put dishwashing liquid in our washing machine because he just didn't understand all those, those nuances. And we would try to take him with us to church uh, or to RUF. And I remember he wouldn't come to church because he didn't own any nice clothes and he felt like he had to dress up to come to church. Do you ever feel like that with God? Do you ever feel like that when you, when you pray? I've, I've got to be holy. I've got to be pious. I've got to use the right language. Or when you share a prayer request and you try to clean them up and, and edit them or qualify them and you, you throw them out and he's like, I know I shouldn't feel this way. And you're trying to fix them even as you request them. Just come. Just come. I mean, look, you, you and I, we are the people of Walmart. Okay? Y'all know those little things that go around on Facebook, kind of the, the badly dressed people at Walmart? We spiritually are those people. And we've got to quit trying to clean ourselves up and just come to God as we are because we serve a God who loves for the people of Walmart to come to Him messy. To come to Him as they are. To come in their neediness and just cry out to their Father. Jesus doesn't say, come to me all who are well rested and have gotten their acts together and I'll give you more rest. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Come in your weariness. Come with your burden. Come with your mess. But come to Jesus. That's what Hannah does here. Hannah's despair... Uh, leads to Hannah's prayer, and then we get to Hannah's song. Uh, in the opening illustration, I talked to you about a guy, I'll tell you his name, his name was Danny. 
uh, and he responded to, to the pain in his life in certain ways. And the way he responded shaped what his life was going to be like. It shaped his life, but it didn't shape it in good ways. The way you and I deal with the pain, the way you and I deal with the hurt, will either lead to more pain, to more hurt, to more anger, to more bitterness, to more addiction, or to lead to singing and praise. It'll lead to, to, to one or the other. It'll lead to more addiction or it'll lead you to sing. Suffering always either makes us bitter or it makes us beautiful. And because she allowed her suffering to lead her to God, Hannah's suffering actually makes her beautiful. And, and, and I want to see, I want you to see two ways that it leads her to sing. Look at verse 16 through 18 again. Um, she She's talking to Eli, and in verse 17, Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. This is before her prayer had been answered. This is before her prayer has been answered. She prays, she tells Eli what's up. Eli adds his words of blessing. He adds her prayer on top of her prayer. And she knows her prayer has been heard by God. She knows her prayer has been heard by the Lord of hosts. She takes her burden, she lays it down on the table, and she slides it across the table to God. And then she turns around and she walks away and it says she was no longer sad and she went and she ate. And let me be careful because this doesn't necessarily come instantly. It doesn't necessarily come through one prayer. But if we take our burden and we slide it to God, and then we feel it coming back and we slide it to God again, if we keep giving it to our Father, if we keep giving it to our Daddy, because we know that He can take care of it, it brings peace. It brings a song of peace into our lives. Uh, Philippians 4 6 through 7 puts it this way Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Bringing our troubles to God brings His peace, a song of peace into our lives. But then secondly and lastly, Hannah's prayer leads to this song of praise and deliverance. And it's, it's in chapter 2 that we read. I can't break that all down for you today. But, but God answers her prayer, right? And she celebrates by praising God. And this is the appropriate response when God answers our prayer. But isn't it easy to kind of get that prayer answered and then be kind of like, well, thanks God, and then, all right, I need you to work on this now. And so when he responds to your, your prayer, especially in some great way, stop and thank him and praise him and give him thanks for what he's done. But let's be real about this. Because God doesn't always answer our prayers the way that he answers Hannah's prayer. There's not always this dramatic deliverance. Uh, when Susan's dad had cancer, he was diagnosed, I guess, three years ago, now, when we all prayed that he would be made well, that he would be healed, and, 
at one point he was actually practically cancer free and we had this wonderful in many ways that although some were difficult this wonderful two years with him but then the cancer came back and eventually took his life some of us have have prayed for relief from burdens for relief from from heartache and struggle that God has chosen to leave with us instead saying to us my grace is sufficient for you I want you to to learn to to lean into my grace and to trust me even though this trial continues but I want us to realize in the midst of that in the midst of that ongoing trial that there's hope even when God doesn't answer our prayers the way we think he should that he is it, it doesn't mean he's not still at work in our lives and it doesn't mean that a better answer isn't coming. I want to I read a story real quick. This is about Paul and uh, his wife, Jill. And I, and I want you to listen to how they prayed. Uh, and it, it didn't go the, the way they thought it was going to go. Uh, Paul writes, when Jill was pregnant with Kim, she prayed using Psalm 121, asking God to keep her baby from all harm. Next to the psalm, Jill wrote the date, August 1981, she started praying this prayer. When Kim was born, everything went wrong. The doctor gave Jill too much Pitocin, a drug to induce labor, and then left her unattended. I'd seen my wife go through three natural childbirths, but this was different. She was in agony. The doctor never came back to the delivery room. Then Kim was born blue and her first APGAR score was low. She looked different to me. I called Jill's parents from a payphone at the hospital. Something's wrong with the baby, I said, and burst into tears. We had no clear diagnosis of what was wrong. We wouldn't until Kim was 19 years old. So we, like most parents of disabled children, were operating in the dark. We didn't know if Kim was hurt from birth or if she had some kind of disorder. I talked to the HMO manager about the doctor's behavior. He said, yes, he's not a good doctor. I talked to the doctor about his behavior, and he threatened to sue us if we did anything. We were young, confused, and afraid. In time, Jill began to hate the dreaded charts that described what your child should be doing at what age. Some doctors encouraged us, saying Kim was fine. Others didn't. One urologist at a major medical center wondered if Jill had beaten Kim. We were overwhelmed with a number of problems Kim had, and new ones just kept coming. Her muscle tone was floppy, her eyes didn't focus, she had pneumonia, she had trouble breathing, especially in the winter, becoming listless when we turned on the heat. Her breathing problem was so pronounced that we used the last of our savings to convert to electric baseboard heat. For the next 20 years, we lived paycheck to paycheck. It was agony, especially for Jill. She had prayed that God would keep Kim from harm, but we were holding a harmed child. At one point I told Jill, why don't you just give Kim to God? She told me, Paul, every day I take Kim up in my arms, walk her up to the foot of the cross, and then turn my back and come down again. It would have been easier for us if Jill had not prayed that Kim would be kept from harm. Now, fast forward. Years later, when Kim was about 20, I was sitting at the dining room table writing a Bible study on Psalm 121 that I was going to teach to our small group. 
I had forgotten about Jill's Psalm 121 prayer. I looked up from the table and said, Jill, God did it. He kept us from all harm. He did Psalm 121. We had thought the harm was a daughter with disabilities, but this was nothing compared to the danger of two proud and willful parents. Because Kim was mute, Jill and I learned to listen. Her helplessness taught us to become helpless too. Kim brought Jesus into our home. Jill and I could no longer do life on our own. We needed Jesus to get from one end of the day to the other. We asked for a loaf of bread, and instead of giving us a stone, our Father had spread a feast for us in the wilderness. Thank you, Jesus, for Kim. Uh, God didn't answer Jill's prayer the way that she had hoped, but God was very much at work in their lives. He was bringing Jesus into their home. And ultimately, that's who we need. And ultimately, that's where this passage points us, I think. See, Samuel was the last of a line of Savior deliverers that God raised up in the nation of Israel prior to their first king. He was really the last of the judges. He was born in the dark day of the judges when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. The nation was in pain, and along comes Samuel, born to a woman who is unable to have children. Years later, another Savior deliverer would be born. Born into a world of pain. Born to a woman who was actually a virgin. Born to a mother who sang a song much like Hannah's. You can read it in the Gospels. When she found out that God was giving her a son and that his name was to be Jesus. Like Paul and Jill in this story, we think we need one thing for our lives to be okay but what we really need is to know Jesus what we really need is to know Jesus the one who endured the ultimate pain on the cross so that our sins might be forgiven so that we might know peace so that we might sing from our heart with praise of the one who delivers us from our sin and sorrow the one who promises us that one day all of our pain will be done away with do you know him do you know him is your pain is, are your struggles are they leading you to pray is your, is your pain leading you to Jesus is your pain leading you to sing let me pray for us um, Father I hate pain and I hate sorrow and discomfort and heartache and, and we all do and we don't always handle it right but Father help us to see what you give us in it and that's an opportunity to draw near to you and to know you so Father help us not to waste these opportunities you give us help us to cry out and not to be ashamed of crying out and to come messy and to come hurt and to come with our heartache and to, to cry out to you and help us in that crying out to know you and to know how much you love us and to become people who love you more and more ourselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.